As a storyteller, I've gotten a chance to meet some really incredible people through the years on various projects, but no one really connected with me in a way quite like Raven. Like Raven, my father was out of the picture for the start of my life. I lived with my grandparents early on until my mom got remarried. Unlike Raven, with his stepfather Eagle, I'm thankful my mother remarried a man that became a real father to me and just happened to be from South Beach. I also share Raven's obsession with baseball and specifically the statistical details, which have fascinated me through the years and the baseball cards. Raven roots for the Los Angeles Dodgers and I root for the Chicago Cubs. We both enjoyed baseball in Florida, which at the time for both of us did not have a major league ball club. Raven is a Dodgers fan because it's his dad's favorite team and his first favorite player was Jim Gillian. And for me, with the Cubs, back when television had few options, they offered baseball through Superstations, which while I was growing up was WGN and led me to fall in love with the Chicago Cubs. But the thing that brings us together the most is that I've always been a runner and have always found joy in the process of running, pushing myself. I feel a sense of peace and my mind becomes clearer. So far, I've only had a chance to run with the Raven a little here and there, but I'm determined to complete the full run. I walk up to the lifeguard stand and I'm immediately introduced to one of the runners. I haven't seen him before, but he isn't new to the run. Hey, Boilermaker, how's it going? Hi. So uh, how, how long have you been running with Raven? So I actually started in 2013. Uh, then I uh, went off to uh, Europe for five years and I just got back about six months ago and kicked it back up again. Been a runner my entire life. When I uh, moved to South Florida in 2004, I started hearing rumors of this guy that ran on the beach every day. And it was like eight miles, nobody knew for sure. And then one day I came out here. Uh, I ran Hash uh, House uh, Harrier runs almost every single weekend in Japan. Runners with a drinking problem. <laughs> or maybe it was drinkers with a running problem. Yeah, one of those. That depends where you are. The Hash House Harriers is a running social group found around the world. It isn't competitive, and they usually insert an optional before, during, or after drinking opponent to the run. They sometimes run off the beaten path with false trails, varying terrains and locations, and they mix in different rules and trail marking signals to add an interesting dynamic to it. All in all, it's a fun thing to participate in. And like Boilermaker said, it's the closest thing I've ever experienced to a Raven run. Especially when you're in an overseas community and the expats, it was a great way for expats to come together and, uh, and to meet uh, the host nation uh, people that were there. That Hash House Harriers is probably the closest thing I've seen to a Raven run. It's just that in a Raven run, there's no mystery to it. You know when you're going to turn, you know how long it's going to be. Always on off. And, you know, the only one to catch is yourself. Each day's run starts at the same time and anyone is welcome to join in but you have to run to get your name. Once you get your name, you officially become part of the community. I asked the runners to tell me more about how the naming process works. I was a new runner then, and I was fascinated by the roll call. I was fascinated by everybody getting a nickname. I think the neatest thing is that when you, the first time you run with him, before you get a Raven name, you run with him and he gets to know you. He goes through all these questions like, what do you do? What's your, you know, do you have any pets? Do you like animals? What's your favorite food? Kind of hear what you're all about, what your hobbies are, what you like to do, where you're from. So after you finish your first eight miles with him, he's he's gotten to know you, 
and then he comes with a name that fits your personality. But you don't get a nickname unless you finish the run. And unless you run eight miles, you don't get the name. If you run seven, you don't get the name. And I tell you what, I would have crawled to finish that run because I had to get that nickname. You know, it's like you're in Top Gun and, you know, one guy's Viper and another one's Maverick. You know, you, so you have your, your Top Gun names. It's kind of funny. Raven keeps a historical list of everyone. And it's kind of like a family. New Year's Eve, clicking from 17 to 18, they had like 95 runners. He introduced every single one of them by their nickname and remembered every single one of them. His keen ability to recall the name of all the runners is pretty surreal to say the least. And you got to go twice, right? You got to go once to get to run the eight, and then you got to come back for roll call because now you're part of the group. It's called the initiation or whatever, but that's what's awesome when now you get your name in front of whoever's running that day. The roll call where you know it tells a little bit about each each runner, and then you know inter- introduces them, and we all clap for each other. He introduces you, and then when you come back down there, he's not going to introduce him as Ray. He has to do this grand introduction when you take off running. And now from Nashville, he's not a weak link. He's the missing link. He's link. No matter how many people are there, he just he's not going to just introduce you. It's got to be something kind of grandiose. The roll call starts at the beginning of each run. A runner cues him with, Anyone know what time it is? And he follows with, Yeah, perfect timing for <laughs> roll call, everybody. Up front. He then proceeds to give everyone their introduction. Some are more simplistic than others, but they all have a unique story to go with their name. Some the way he introduces them, others the discussion that'll happen on the run. If someone joins the run after the start or halfway through, they still get this formal introduction because you can always count on the Raven starting the run at the same time every day one person you could always count on and that's Raven. And whether it's uh, 5.30 or 4.30, you know, daylight savings, he's going to be there and you have a friend and really just such a cool group of friends to run with and to, uh, to just catch up with. Just a very cathartic process. And, and the group is so eclectic. It's almost like the, the island of misfit toys, right? That has this, this running thing in common. And there's great respect for, for one another, no matter where you're from and no matter what you know, walk of life you're from. And, you know, I've run with royalty and you know, uh, people that had their own planes, and I've also run with a guy that just got out of jail. The, the camaraderie without judgment is probably one of the purest forms of, of social activity. You never know who you'll meet, but no matter what your interests are or who you are, there'll be something for you on this run. I love that he's created this community of people around him. And I think every person on the run can say, you know, they have acquired new friends. It's the kind of people he brings together. Whenever I run, I run into new people. There's always great stories and there's always something I can learn. When I'm running with him, I love to hear the stories about South Beach way before I was born. And I love to hear about all the stories and how it used to be and all the cool people he's met and all that. I love it. You know, I've met some of my best friends uh, on the Raven Run. You'd find a, a lot of Raven Runners who would say, when I walk down the street and I see somebody who I say, hey, poutine, hey, tax man, hey, sleazebuster, you know, when I, you know, it, in the sleaze buster happens to be a Harvard trained law professor from Northwestern. And when you holler, Hey, sleaze in a restaurant, 
people will look at you like there's either something wrong with you or something wrong with him. And, and all of those things have occurred because Raven brought us together. There's such a great camaraderie with everybody. You know, you meet people of, from everywhere. It's just he does such a great job of keeping track of everybody and everybody's runs and swims. I think the fact that he keeps the statistics of everybody and knows everybody's runs, he's like, hey, Deep Dish, this is your fifth run. And, you know, and, I, and he remembers your birthdays. It's, it's I don't know, something, something magical about it. The Raven not only gives you a runner's name, but he'll remember who you are, your birth date, how many runs you've done. So when you return, he recalls all your stats. It's pretty supernatural because he doesn't write it down right away. Just keeps in his head. So at the end of each night, he'll jot it down on his list. New runners' names, where they're from, and it just sticks with him. So then he sees you two years later, and he could somehow recite your name, birthday, how many times you've run, and where you're from. Now I've seen this on several occasions, and I'm still in as much disbelief as the person that's come back to run with him. This information doesn't just get stored away. It's used with other interesting statistics to create a yearly award ceremony. Well, the first one I went to, I didn't know what to expect. So it's just, it just neat seeing people getting awards. I'm like, why? I had no idea. I knew he kept a list, but I didn't know people got awards. That was cool. And then I got my first award, probably almost 150, almost 200 times in one year and swimming. And I'm like, okay, I want to do this again next year. Like it just, it just motivates you to, to be on the list and be acknowledged. And, and then it's fun to give awards. Even if you're not getting one, it's fun to give one because you got one in the past. So it's, yeah, it's like a big family reunion. That's, that's probably the best description. And like a corporate award ceremony kind of all combined. Because during the year, the year we have something to look forward to. You know, you, we have uh, goals. We all want to win something. And even if we don't win, just voting, I love to vote for the for the banquet. I love um, reading all the nicknames and deciding. I don't know. It makes me feel uh, part of something. The Raven puts together a ballot that runners get to cast their votes each year for various categories. Outstanding achievements like running in a hurricane, doing the run backwards, the most money found on the run, or the most unusual activity or something that just happened during the run. Not to mention the Hall of Fame each year. All of these award a certificate at the banquet, inspired by Raven's love for baseball and statistics. Now it's my turn to do the run. I have to admit, I'm a little nervous about doing the whole eight miles on the sand. All right. Claudio, my producing partner, is going to go for it too. We'll see if we have what it takes to earn our nicknames. There you are. I know what time it is. It's time for roll call, everybody. I'll start with uh, everybody. Say hi to Vincent and Claudio. Hey, Vincent hey, and Claudio. Yeah. You guys got to get a shout out, right? Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
A 19-year-old raven, determined to make it as a songwriter, looks to his music icons for the inspiration he needs to make his next move. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. And all hello again from Music City, USA, Nashville, Tennessee. And Johnny, Johnny Cash got the TV show in 1969, and he the first first guest he ever had on was Bob Dylan. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan would not go on TV except for Johnny Cash. I saw that and I said, I gotta go to Nashville. That that was the goal. That was it. All right. That's why I got the job. That was the goal to save money to take the Greyhound to Nashville. He wasn't giving up on his dream, so he packed his bags in 1969 and headed out for Nashville. If he was going to make it, Music City would be the perfect place to get his start. Nashville, Tennessee, the country and western music capital of America. A music kingdom resting on a booming entertainment and recording industry that tops a half billion dollar gross per year. Got the ticket and it takes one day to get to Nashville. And Johnny Cash's birthday was February 26th. So got there right before his birthday and met him right after his birthday. He had people on the show that nobody else would have like Creedence Clearwater Revival, Roy Orbison, Louis Armstrong, Ray Charles, he'd get people. He'd come on stage with his back to the stage with his guitar, and he'd spin around and go, Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. And then he'd just start playing something. Then he'd have a, he'd do another song, he'd bring a guest, he'd have a little comedy with his wife, or, you know, sometimes he had a comedian on, but the music, I think I was at every taping when I was there. I got a room right away. I, I got off the, the Greyhound station is one block from the Grand Ole Opry. The Grand Ole Opry of Nashville, the metropolitan of country and western music, has been a reservoir of talent and a showcase for country artists for nearly two generations. I got this room, I'm one block away from the Grand Ole Opry, Johnny Cash, all the country music stars in the world. I could see the Raven's face light up as he remembers being just a short walk from the excitement. His goal seems within reach. Meanwhile, I also have to find a job too, to, if I'm gonna stay there. The Baptist Sunday School, a few blocks down the street, once again is a dishwasher. Rent is $12.50 a week. You stay three months, it's $12 a week. And I did, I got it down to 12. Ross Hotel, 140 4th Avenue North, apartment 48, room 48. The smallest room I've ever had. A little tiny closet this way, a bed here and a sink and a window, and that's it. Just enough to get on the floor, probably hitting my elbows doing push-ups. I did push-ups, you know, and could stretch out. Like so many artists and writers, the road is never easy, and the conditions are often tough. But the dream of making it big was enough to make it worth it to give him a reason to keep pushing forward. So I find out the Johnny Cash show is free, but you have to stand in line every week to get the ticket. Of course, I had nowhere to go, but 
wait for the ticket. The first week, I think I stood there for a long time. It's cold. It's February, but got the ticket. But I was there every week to get the tickets and got, I think I got to every show. The Johnny Cash Show shaped the entertainment nation. Alongside highlighting musical talents of all backgrounds and ages, he also spoke about religion, the mistreatment of minority groups like Native Americans, the oppressed, the incarcerated, the important people in the workforce like farmers and coal miners. He touched on topics that no other show would and influenced the variety shows later to come, like The Smothers Brothers and Sonny and Cher. Variety shows became a huge trend in the 60s and 70s. Nearly every well-known celebrity had their own variety show, and it consisted of musical performances and comedy that centered around cultural, social, and political themes. The Johnny Cash Show was a phenomenon that paved the way for television entertainment. One night I, was, you know, I, I saw his father, you know, because he introduced his father, I knew what he looked like. And one night I'm sitting like right next to him. You know, I know, I know it's his father, but I don't say nothing to him, I'm, you know, shy. So we're, we're sitting there and he's clapping, he's clapping real kind of funny like this, like just going back and forth. And I'm looking at him, you know, I have smiles because I know who he is. And he goes to me, oh, that's my son there. I said, I know, I know. You know, he says, yeah, I'm proud of him. And then he, then he does a, a gospel song and he turns to me and says, that's one of my favorite songs or it is my favorite song. And in the movie, him and his father did not get along. Do you remember the movie? The movie he's referencing is the 2005 motion picture, Walk the Line, starring Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon. But I thought Father seemed real proud of him. And we sat together twice at the Grand Old Opry. Every week I was there. I notice how Raven makes sure to defend Johnny Cash's father. I know he has regrets about his relationship with his own father. I've heard it in his songs. But he never seems to hold on to that resentment. It's something I've come to admire about him. He he had a segment, Johnny Cash had a segment on his TV show called Ride This Train. Come along and ride this Come train. Come along and ride this train. Come along and ride this train. Through the mountains, prairies, reservations, rivers, levees, plains. Come along and ride this train. That's what, that's... It's the segment every week. Then he'd go into, well, come along and ride this train to... Ride this train with me to Yuma, Arizona. You see that river over there? That's the Colorado. She's wild and restless, bucking, trying to get out of her banks. I got my first taste of its temper when I decided to set out in a small outboard boat and do some fishing on it. And then he'd have a segment on, uh, like, Indians or farmers or truck drivers. It was really pure American. I loved it. I didn't know when he filmed that because he, when he did his TV show, he just did the stuff with his guest. So one night I'm walking around and there's this big black Cadillac, the one he always drove, always came in this big black Cadillac semi-limousine, but he drove himself. So I see it sitting there behind the Opry and I says, well, Johnny must be in there. I'll just wait him out. I wait and I wait and 45 minutes or so goes by. Johnny comes out all by himself with a cigarette. He looks at me and says, well, what are you doing here? I said, well, I saw your car and uh, I knew you were here. He goes, yeah, we're uh, filming a segment. Oh, you want to come in? He bites me in. Uh, here I am following Johnny Cash up the stairs, the Grand Ole Opry, just me and him. And I'm looking at him, so there's Johnny Cash 
my buddy, Johnny Cash, and I'm going up up the stairs with him. So I get up in there and he opens the door and gets a stool for me. Like there's six stools. Carl Perkins is there, June Carter, some other musicians. June comes over, they just had a baby. And well, how you doing? Let's have fun with us. And uh, Carl Perkins is playing guitar. So he does the segment, the Ride This Train segment. And behind him is a screen, you know, with like like a video. So this, this was actually the start of music videos, in my opinion. You know, because I never seen anything like it before. They he'd be doing, you know, this ride this train segment, and behind him would, would be exactly what he's singing about. It was Indians. He showed these Indians and reservations or uh, cowboys on the ranch as he's singing. I thought, wow, this is really cool. So that night, I think it was more of a gospel thing, and it was all said and done. He dropped the lyric sheet, left the lyric sheet on the floor. I still got that lyric sheet. That was that was a treasure. Never forget that night. I can feel how important this event was as he tells me this story. And the way he remembers every detail, I feel like I'm there with him. Fascinated with how the events unfolded, the timing of what started in Vegas, only to bring him to Nashville and get to spend this moment with his hero, the legend himself. This might just be... Raven's lucky break. I kept talking to Johnny after the show. I'd wait for him to sign all his autographs, get all his pictures taken. I didn't, I didn't interrupt. I didn't get in the way. And I'd wait till it's all over. And a, a couple of times, Harold Reed of the Statler brothers would bring me over. He knew I was always going to try to talk to Johnny. He says, hey, uh, uh, there's John. I'll, I'll bring you over. He's free now. How do you refer to you? What, what do you say? Uh, like this? Is Robert he, or no, he Buddy. Is? He always called me Buddy. Johnny Cassidy. I told him my name, but he just called me Buddy. So Harold Breed would, Breed would bring me over and say, uh, there, there's Johnny. He would just kind of walk me over and Johnny would be done. And we'd talk about uh, the show. That was a really good show. I, I, never, I never said anything negative. I would say, and every show was good. It was, I wasn't lying. That was a really good show where I'd point out uh, Charlie Pride uh, sounded really good tonight. And oh, I really liked that song, you know. And he goes, oh, thank you, buddy. Thank you. And a couple of times he says, uh, hey, bring me any lyrics? You know, something like that. In my mind, I thought I'm going to be the next big star. You know, here I, I don't sing, you know, I, I write, and it's still it's still on a on a, a smaller level. And I thought, well, Johnny's going to give me a shot, and I'm going to place it. I'm going to sing some songs for him. I didn't even have anything on tape. I just had lyric sheets. That's all I had. Thought, well, I'm, I'm going to give him a lyric sheet. He's going to sing it, and I'm going to be a big big songwriting star. And I got to tell you, I was wearing black before he was. I've got to tell you, 1964 with the Eagle. But he's still the man in black, but I was wearing black. I'm not trying to imitate him. We just probably have the same, the same mind, mind thought about it. When I was there, he wrote that song, actually, The Man in Black. I was there the night he premiered The Man in Black, the Grand Old Opry. I wrote this song, and I just finished writing this song, the fourth or fifth rewrite this morning, so that's why I've got to have the cards to remind myself of what the words are, the last version I wrote. This song is a very personal thing, I suppose you might say, but it's the way I feel about a lot of things. This song is called The Man in Black. Well, you wonder why I always dress in black, why you never see bright colors on my back. It's amazing to think that Raven was in the very crowd cheering along 
being among the first group of people to hear that song. One can only imagine what was going through a young Raven's mind. My guess was he wanted to get his own lyrics into the hands of the man in black. I gave Johnny lyrics, I won't say every week, but almost every week. And I knew I was gonna to get to see him, so I wasn't like desperate. I'd always uh, figure if I don't see him this week, talk to him this week, I'll see him next week. And what would you say when you give them to him? I got these songs I wrote, but it was just lyrics. They weren't like, they didn't have CDs or tapes. I just would give them the lyrics. That's all I had. Raven's plan was taking shape. How was he going to convince Johnny that he was worthy? How could this relationship move from being a fan that he interacted with after a show to an artist he could collaborate with? I just would hand copy my songs over and give him one copy and keep the original. And I give him something nearly every week, more and more than one. Sometimes it's a couple songs. And some, some songs I have already written a while back, you know, from 68, 69. Raven, being this meticulous guy he is now, I imagine was true then. Seems like multiple copies of his lyrics, hand copied from Nashville, existed in some of the stacks around us. So Raven continued to write songs in his tiny apartment in Nashville and doing all he could to get his lyrics in the hands of his music idols, who performed just blocks away at the Grand Ole Opry. I got to see Waylon Jennings there. This was March 12th, 1970. And this is the last time that I ever saw snow that night that Waylon Jennings was there. I got, I got a few stories that, uh, you know, that I never, never told. Because uh, also that uh, Anita Carter, June Carter's sister, she had this voice like a, like a ringing bell. She was like one of the best country singers. That, she never had like a lot of big hits, but she had this beautiful voice. And I, I was always hanging around. And after the show, she'd sign autographs and she saw a pen sticking out of my pocket, songwriter pen. And she says, can I borrow your pen? So I'd follow her around while she was signing autographs until she finished and gave it to me back. So I'm, I'm approaching Waylon and uh, Jesse steps in front of me, says, what, what, do you, what do you want to see Waylon for? Oh, I got some songs for, oh, okay. Anyway, I, I give, give Waylon the songs, the, the lyrics. I said, maybe you could, I'm so naive at this point, but you know, I'm 19 years old. Maybe uh, you could write me and let me know how you like him. <laughs> he goes, I don't even write my own mother. Oh, I'm, I'm thinking, He's gonna like these songs, I'm gonna hear from him. Even though when he said he didn't write his own mother, I kinda, I kinda burst my bubble a little bit like I'm, I'm not gonna ever hear from him. Yeah, I, I kinda thought, no, it's, it, it, it's a pipe dream. It's a, you know, it's a fantasy that he's gonna call and say, hey, I like this, you know. Now, this day and age, I could, I could give him a CD of some really good songs, but back then it was just some lyrics. There were good lyrics. I told her, my mom, and yeah, she's, oh, you got, got your songs to wait, because by that time she knew who he was. Well, that's great. Maybe you'll hear from him. Maybe something happens. Yeah, sure hope so. Yeah, she'd watch it every week. You know, she's hoping to see me. Raven seems to be doing all the right things with the important artists of the time. It was just about seeing if this would materialize as a career. And while some things were out of his control, his passion to write song lyrics was his focus. And his writing at the time had a different energy and importance to it. Inspiration surrounded him in the city everywhere he went. I wrote The Fugitive on the Run in the post office, looking at the wanted posters. 
it was at night when the post office was already closed. It was kind of dark, a dark hallway. And, and, the, and they had this case with the wanted posters. That's when I got the idea for that song, which I thought was pretty good because, you know, the guy's a fugitive, he's escaped and, and they got his picture in the post office. Anyway, so I was surviving, I was making money and uh, writing songs. Raven's initial optimism and starry-eyed dreams started to turn into something else. What if he didn't make it? What if he wasn't good enough? What if his heroes simply ignored him? Thing was, everybody in Nashville was a songwriter. And like that song, Nashville Cats, there are 1,352 guitar pickers in Nashville. You ever heard? By John Sebastian, who called me on that phone one time. Yeah, I got I got some personal letters from him, from Loving Spoonful. Suddenly, I, I feel like I'm, I'm one of like thousands, just like some speck of speck of sand in the you know in the desert. And I'm, I'm nobody, you know. And everybody knows somebody. Everybody's you know is hustling. Even the guy at the Baptist Sunday School says he's good friends with Glenn Campbell. Give me some some lyrics. I'll get it to Glenn. I kept saying to myself, if I come back to South Beach, I'm going to be, uh, I'll be a unique character because I'll be the only country songwriter pretty much in Miami, Miami Beach. You know, there's not there's not any too many country guys. Raven swallowed hard. He saw the writing on the wall. He wasn't going to make it in Nashville. He wasn't going to become a star. With a deep sigh and a hint of defeat, Raven decided to head back home to Miami. Maybe he could pick up his dreams someday, but not now and not here. When I got back to South Beach, I, I felt like I had a great experience. I met Johnny Cash. He was the biggest selling artist in the world at that time. You know, 1970, more records than anybody in the whole world. And here I am hanging out with him. I said, wow, that's great. But nothing happened. And I'm, I'm glad I'm back because I just didn't uh, feel like um, that I didn't want to live in Nashville at this point, unless, unless I made it as a songwriter. And I didn't make any other connections. I felt man, a little bit like a failure, but I was going to keep writing. I wasn't, I wasn't going to quit because this, this was a passion of mine. Wasn't going to quit. His passion for songwriting kept him going. And while he noticed a little disappointment, this is countered with fond memories from his trip as he continued to talk with me about the importance of going to Nashville and the impact of being on the road. I, mean, I, I went there and I, I mean, I could have just started getting bus tickets to the next town. I was, you know, I, I was thinking maybe this would be a quite an adventure, just going from one town to the next and get a job and just keep moving. Uh, that was that was kind of a thought I, I was going through. I, I, then I kept getting uh, restless to come back here, missing the beach, you know. While many of us can relate to the power of roaming to a new place to help us understand something bigger, Raven recalls roaming days and what could have been. It really helped to feed his curiosity, along with shaping his music and understanding of the world. The road is a constant theme in his life and lyrics. It just, you know, just like thoughts come back, you know, when, when I was traveling. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, 50-something years later, it just comes back while I'm riding my bicycle a couple miles away. But, you know, you feel like you're alone, like, like the song says, but you're really, 
you know, my mom was alive then, so, you know, I really wasn't alone, you know. Roman's been my way of life since I was but a child. These itchy feet kept moving, I was always free and wild. No time to settle down, afraid of what I'd miss. I'd rather be living than trying to exist. I've traveled down that dusty road and long forgotten highway, taking me full circle back to home. I've loved and lost along the way, sunk deeper than a stone. Journey I have taken into the darkness of unknown. I've learned my lessons the hard way, I've never been alone. Roman always comes to an end, no matter who you are. The distance growing closer on the roads you traveled far. There's folks that always loved you, and a God above, it's true. There'll be there waiting when your Roman days are through. I've traveled down that dusty road and long forgotten highway. It's taken me full circle back to home. I've loved and lost along the way, some deeper than a stone. Journey I have taken into the darkness of unknown. I've learned my lessons the hard way. I've never been alone. I've learned my lessons the hard way. I've never been alone. Raven is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Life is My Movie Entertainment. Hosted by me, Vincent Vittorio. Executive produced by Jason Hoke, Claudio Zungri, Vincent Vittorio, and Laura Caulfield. Original music by Louis Harrell. Original songs, Robert Ravencraft. Audio mixing by Richard Spooner. Story editors are Vincent Vittorio, Claudio Zungri, Teen U, Eric Ricks, Jessica Vittorio, Jeremy Marr, and Carolyn Harvey. Original photography, Mary Beth Kaith. Cinematography and editing, Ashton McCammon and Marley Mullis. Special thanks to Raven and the running community. If you're enjoying Raven's story and would like to join him on the run, it's as simple as going to the Fifth Street Lifeguard Stand on Miami South Beach. Get there at 5.30 during daylight savings time, and then it switches to 4.30. If you're looking for an extra special run, join Raven for his birthday run, October 17th. This day always brings a fun group of runners. Be sure to wish a happy birthday to the legend himself. In addition to this podcast, we've created some bonus original video content. Find us on YouTube at Life Is My Movie Entertainment. Thank you so much for listening.